Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show for the second half of our conversation is Tom Russo, the managing member of Gardner Russo & Gardner. Last week, Tom talked in detail about his holding in Berkshire Hathaway. This week, we continue the conversation with his newest holding in Google. Our conversation covers buying Google now, comparing the company to Facebook, future growth opportunities starting from a very large base, competition from Amazon, Google X's long-term moonshots, and related stories in Tom's portfolio companies, Philip Morris and Nestle. Please enjoy the second half of my second conversation with Tom Russo. 
So I want to turn to something that you touched on earlier, and I let alone, which is Berkshire's shift slowly IBM into Apple into yeah. technology investments. Yeah. I understand from reading your quarterly letters that not too long ago, you added a new position, which That's is a monumental <laughs> event. And so what's this new name that you bought? Yes, well, it's Google. And it's Google now, why not earlier? And in part, it was well, the thing that kept me most concerned with Google for so long was antitrust, that it was international. It was the reality that in international markets, you can lose fair trade suits, not based on conduct, but on market share. And they have market share just by virtue of the fact that they have such a powerful search engine. They migrate towards being the massive dominant search engine. And abroad, the scale of their market share alone created risks that I just overweighed as an investor, the consequence of those. And by now, they've grown to such a stage that it's unlikely that the magnitude of any judgment against them on that issue is going to cause them the kind of setback that I feared. And that's sort of an awareness over the past year and a half. I'm now kind of set free to think about it. And at the same time, Google began to really transform itself on a couple of very profound ways. One, YouTube has become a massive engine for them. And the advertising potential, the viewership, the hours, it's being commercialized at a fast rate and it's becoming extremely valuable. And the growth in programmatic advertising is something that I began to track more closely as our portfolio companies increasingly spoke of the inevitability and the lack of alternatives to using Google and Facebook to advertise and promote their products. So I hear it from the portfolio companies that increasingly they cannot do without Google and Facebook in programmatic advertising. And that as they use it, the costs collapse vis-a-vis traditional advertising, high cost, poor quality outcomes. And so they are in the path of getting the dollars that are being siphoned away from WPP and their counterparts and driving more effective outcomes for consumer products companies. So that's underway. And I haven't involved our capital with Facebook because within Facebook, though they are probably even more indispensable than Google in terms of programmatic advertising, part of the appeal has been the length of time and the height of passion that people exerted with Facebook, in part because of the kind of conduct that it turns out they can no longer engage in. I'm reminded of of one of the very first steps that followed the Cambridge analytics and the mischief around the election, that the first question was getting rid of on Facebook known associates with criminal elements. It's like a million people dropped off just then. And then... The first standard was for advertising. No entity accounts would be allowed to advertise, in the political sphere at least, without disclosing who's behind them. So a campaign for a happier America doesn't have the ability today to shield the identities. And that's a big deal. So those advertisements, the sponsored advertisements that came from such pools of capital while they were undisclosed, were really quite invectives and quite engaging. And so people were on Facebook in a heightened state by virtue of what they could do. And people who were unintended to see that advertising couldn't see it. And so the second change was Facebook had to make everything that they have available 
to anyone who wishes to see it. So the business that they've enjoyed is not the same business going forward. Mark Zuckerberg now is talking about going back to communities and creating what are things like needle pointers who all share a similar interest. Well, you're not going to get the kind of outcomes that you could get when the political spin and the, the really disagreeable Fed streams, which caused huge consequences amongst their viewer, were able to deliver over the past several years. So there's a fundamental change underway at Facebook. Now you can fall back on Instagram, which is huge, and then WhatsApp, which is even more huge, hasn't been developed yet. And so it'll be fine, I suspect. It's just not as knowable. With Google, you have the advance of YouTube underway, you have the advance of programmatic advertising, and you have these silos of moonshots that they've been willing to fund without regard to the burden on income that gets them to the point today where they are near launch on several big deals, whether it's Waymo or whether it's Verily, which is the medical record stuff. Waymo is probably the first and biggest one. And then the valuation is, as you know, huge pile of cash. So you back the cash out, give some kind of value to Waymo that bears reference to some of the other auto industry transformative investments and where they stand in market value. Uber is, you know, it's $100 billion of market value, probably much more than that. And so you have some imputed value, some enormous imputed value onto Waymo, which is going to be part and parcel with disruptive auto technology. And you come back to a fairly modest PE. And so that's it. Now, mind you, I covet businesses that are owner-managed. And the initial underwriting documents for Google had a letter to potential interested investors saying, don't even think about voting control. Because as Warren Buffett said, we believe in Buffett's principles and we're never going to sell vote. And so stay away. And, and then they behaved in accordance with the power that that gives them over their early years by investing deeply in things that only showed losses for a long time. And they're continuing to do that. When did you start paying careful attention to Google or the ecosystem? From the start. I spent four years at Stanford Business Law School, so I was aware of its general context from people I stayed in touch with out there. But it was this mislaid fear over litigation risk. Spoken by someone who happened to have 10% of funds in tobacco. So <laughs> go figure. <laughs> go figure. I remember, I don't know if you're going to remember this, but in I happen to know the year, in the year 2000, I remember bumping into you at a investor day for an advertising company called DoubleClick. Oh, yes. Oh, God. At the first wave of the internet, yeah. which of course is now owned by Google, as you pay attention to, so this is kind of this fascinating question. So you have this one overhanging concern about antitrust. Yeah. Yeah. There's a price for that concern. Yes. And the stock has moved a fair amount while you've been trying to get fold. more. Right. Fold. I mean, it's gone from 70 to 1,000. And perhaps unlike MasterCard growing 15-fold when you missed it, and then it sold off 60%, Google's a much bigger company today. So how do you think about the future compound growth opportunity you know, you will see entering me. now? Well, you did see me because we were together at a cryptocurrency event. That's eight, true. 18 months ago. I will be cited at cannabis events this year. I probably won't make an investment in either of those, though our portfolio companies, whether it's MasterCard using blockchain technology 
or Wells Fargo using what blockchain technology. Our portfolio companies will be involved. Certainly, our portfolio companies are, are involved already and get increasingly involved with cannabis. Altria has an investment. Heineken's empowered Lagunitas to go into the field. And so it's moving along. And I probably won't be the front range, so it's got spears in the chest as opposed to in the back. But I am certainly going to stay tuned to those. Now, hopefully I'll account for my investors' returns more fully than I did with the segue from DoubleClick to Google, because there was a huge return made in the meantime. Now, what's really interesting is that when DoubleClick was public and something to look at, the world of technology was still far more about building out the networks and the infrastructure. Speed wasn't there. You couldn't really do what people who were visionary at the time said would be done. It's all obviously being done now, plus you know, multiples of it. But pipes were slow and technology hadn't really been perfected. And so you were buying into sort of new housing developments before the first homes were up. And you know, that's one way to invest. I've typically been comforted by the fact that everything has been built out. And I, the things that we do are attractively valued, but they don't presume uncertainty over whether the products that they have will or won't work. Yeah. Historically, when you've entered names, you've owned them for decades. How do you think about Google 10 or 20 years from now. It will have changed our lives. I mean, it's the same kind of disruption I look at in everything. So I was just looking this week at a publication that tracks spirits companies, and one in particular is called Campari. And Campari has a product called Aperol. Aperol is used for spritzers. It's a refreshing drink mixed with Prosecco and Aperol, which is a bitters. And it's taken over Europe. Campari bought it small company. They've rolled it out. It's taken over Europe. I think it's taken over North America because the people I know all guzzle the stuff. It's fabulous. It's the refreshing drink of the century and everything else. And I looked at the statistics for aperitifs in North America and Aperol's gone from 30,000 cases seven years ago to 100,000 cases. Now, the largest aperitif companies in North America do 6 million cases. And yet, within my sphere of influence, because I know the management from Campari, I associate with people who like the product, and so I see it around all the time where I circulate, it's only 100,000 cases in North America. It could be 3 million in five years, given the kind of ramp and given the way that the management there carefully roll things out with permanence in mind. But it's only 100,000 cases now, and I sort of feel like the spring is sprung. And so it's one of those things that happens in the investment business when you're around a group of people who have early insights on something and it moves and you may not have been involved. You think, well, obviously it's already happened. But 100,000 to 6 million, it hasn't happened. There's a tremendous capacity for that to go up a lot. And as I look at Google today, I'd say clearly it's happened, but it hasn't. I mean, the amount... Even today, the amount of advertising and the programmatic advertising that they are involved with, though it's growing, it's $2 billion a quarter now. It's a $400 billion market. So like Aperol, there's plenty of room to grab. And then who knows about Waymo and who knows about scooters and who knows about AI. Now, one of the things that you do have to recognize within Google is now it's a firm of 107,000 people. 
And it's no longer the private preserve of zealots. It's people show up and they, from their desk at Google, they, they immediately sit down upon being hired and start to think of a startup that they could jump ship to and create a new buzz. And so it's become kind of mainstream. And within it, people start to worry about things like how they treat gender equality and how they do or don't participate with government contracts with the Defense Department. Well, the moment you say that you're not going to have an AI business that has an involvement with some aspect of the Defense Department, particularly if it's defense-oriented, and you say that we just won't touch it because of our values, the moment you stop being front-edge and leading it as a science-driven company like they are. And so there are new agendas that are taking hold within Google at its scale and given its kind of middle age, let's just say, in the growth cycle, that may deflect some of the benefit that we're looking for. Everything you've said, except for the comparison to a tiny little aperitif that could grow multiple, multiple times, makes it sound like, well, Google could be like middle innings here, right? It's a company that's maturing and putting in bureaucracy and processes. And yeah, there's a growth profile. And yet, once a decade, you punch that ticket and you punched it for Google. Well, because I think that the businesses have a very high probability of working and being transformative. Even in the advertising area, it is such an early inning still. What do you think that growth profile of the top line looks like as you look out the next couple of it's years? It's well over 20%. Even at these oh, big yeah. numbers, yeah. Yeah, because the advertising $2 billion a quarter now, it may have been $500 million two years ago. Yeah. So. It's just getting the benefit of penetration. But at the same time, the offset is is no longer the risk of litigation. It's the risk of becoming mainstream and then having a host of new distractions come up. At a time when, by the way, Larry Page no longer shows up to work. Now this sort of cloud intrigue. Right. If you were a young analyst at the Sequoia Fund, as you were way back when. One of the lenses that a lot of portfolio managers look at in stocks is this notion of a variant perception. Right. What do you know about Google that the market doesn't know because that's what's going to drive? Do you incorporate that into the way you're thinking about Google? Well, in Google's case, it's the insight from our portfolio companies of the fact that they don't think that they could do without the platforms. Even... Philip Morris, when I met with the CEO in Switzerland in September, suggested that they'd have a billion-dollar savings potential over the next several years. And when I asked him what it sourced from, he said, big data. Big data. He said, we have always maintained our own internal data, but we can now buy data that relates to our business prospects. We can buy it and use it well enough that will probably save a billion dollars over time on being more effective at how we spend in marketing and budgeting. And that's a big deal. And of course, that's coming through Google and other providers of big data that will make Philip Morris's algorithmic searches more effective and will reduce the cost of capture, new clients, however else they're thinking about retaining their business. And I think the thing I bring to the table is the advertising side as it relates to the consumer products world. How do you think about the competition from perhaps the only legitimate search competition, which is Amazon? Yeah, yeah. Amazon, what's intriguing about Amazon, is, at least as a consumer for my purposes, and, and you mentioned Sequoia Fund, ironically, because they actually, I was an analyst there, as you know, and today the analysts there are deeply 
involved with Amazon, Google, Facebook, and have sizably beefed up that area of their endeavor. And I remember at the annual meeting of Sequoia Fund about five years ago, when somebody asked about Amazon and Google, they said that the biggest threat to Google was Amazon. This is way back when. And sort of light bulb went up because I know personally, I rarely ever search anything when I'm buying something. I rarely ever search Google. I just go to Amazon. If I'm buying a new television, I go to Amazon. They'll say, this is a Samsung QLED. It's 29 inches and and it's $400 here, it's $300 here, and it has the following consumer satisfaction guides. Five star, $100 less there. Click, I buy it. And that's the extent of my research. At one point, I would have gone to Google and had a very long, involved research process. It's not happening. So that's one thing. Now, Amazon has kind of first mover advantage and probably a winner take all advantage in terms of the distribution cost per unit. That's something I completely missed. I mean, that, that notion that they are actually delivering more packages now faster and with more delight than the post office with designs that make the likelihood of problem-free delivery higher because no one knows delivery like they do. It's a competitive advantage that'll be hard to rest away. Now, one of the ironic stock declines over the past several weeks has been Federal Express, which has dropped from 260 to 150. And, you know, they're trying to serve Amazon at the same time, compete with it. And its share prices collapsed to nine times that income. So it's an interesting time for that company in the face of the fact that their future seems fairly bright as it involves all others trying to get to the consumer fast. So when you watch a stock like Google, and clearly outside of this antitrust concern, you've been interested in it for a while. To what extent do you look for just that stock price move? So you started, I think it was third quarter when you started buying it. Okay, there was a dip in the fourth quarter. Yes, added to it. Yeah, and just to give a sense, because I had a chance to read your letter, and I was like, wow, Tom's bought a new name. And then I look in the back of the letter, and how big was the position when you first wrote about it? Less than 1%. It's now just over 1%. It's not a big position, and it will likely grow. And begs the question about, Facebook and Amazon. And as I mentioned with Amazon, the insight there is not privately held. It's just they have a massive competitive advantage in delivery costs. And they they have to be very careful. I must say that search function that I rely upon them to treat me fairly with has to be protected. And they have to be very careful. So I, for instance, recently went to buy William Sonoma kitchen towels. They have a blue stripe down the middle. It says William Stone. It's what we like. So I thought, well, why don't I just check Amazon? Maybe I can buy those less expensively. They appear on the home page, four for 40 bucks. Again, the dozens of vendors, four for 40 bucks. A picture of a white towel with blue with a label going through it. And up the left-hand corner of the first page, there was one that said 12 towels for 30 bucks. Everyone else is four for 40. And so I I kept thinking, well, if I went back, I was going to click and buy that one because, after all, I get lots more at a lower price. And then I looked, and it was like William Sonomi. And it was from, <laughs> it was a complete passing off. Yeah. But there was a very high probability in my hurried life that I wouldn't investigate beyond the original visual impression. I clicked by, it comes, I said, what's this piece of poor quality material doing here? And it's because of passing off. They have to be careful not to mislead the consumer. They're in a privileged position. If, if they just behave, 
that their advantages are abundant enough to make it rewarding and rich forever. So as you're looking at you know these three of the FANG stocks, and you can sense different levels of interest. Google you own, the others you don't. Facebook, less interested in. Yeah, maybe there's a day for Amazon. What's that day like when you're buying the first share for you? I mean, this only happens yeah. once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like any other day. I think one of the things that Charlie Munger has said over the years, I thought very valuable in managing the portfolio, is number one, the stock doesn't know you own it. Okay. Number two, you don't have to make back your money the same way you lost it. So, and these issues sort of surface in my management of the portfolio all the time. The stock doesn't know you own it. Well, we certainly, we certainly project in a way that we think that they know we own it very well and that we have this thing going on together. And so <laughs> that's not true. And you just have to remember that. And then making it back the same way you lost it, Philip Morris dropped from 118 to 70 the second half of last year. And it has the same virtues around the world that the U.S. market has under-delivered because of the FDA flat response to a product. I now know that with Jewel's ascendancy, there is more risk to the business than there was when it was at 120. And the product that they tried to launch was delayed has consequences. But I have to be careful not to say, oh, yeah, and I know that. And when it gets back to 120, I'll sell it. That's the really hard thing to avoid. And that you saw that with so many companies with Valiant as it lurched its way downward. People, I think, along the way said, and in some cases, people doubled down because it was something that they had created this relationship with. And so we have to be very careful. Yeah. So when you roll into December and the markets really sell off, how do you calibrate how much to put in? Uh, frankly, the fourth quarter of this year, I think it may have been down 10%. It may have been the best performing stock in the portfolio because the international consumer, just the general fear of trade wars had weighed so heavily on the market. So what we did have an opportunity to do was we had some sales of heavy-weighted positions that freed up some capital. So we bought some more Google around the $1,000 or whatever it was. It came down. But it didn't come down as heavily, and it wasn't an opportunity to leave a position full scale and, and swap in. The beauty of Google is that it is liquid as can be, so we have the ability to go in and size it if and when the opportunity is right. And how do you think about the economic value of the moonshot area, given that if you look at your own portfolio, you don't have a bunch of core anchor compounding names plus a bunch of moonshots on the side? No, no. But our companies have moonshots internally. That's really what we count on is that they either are buying new technology companies that that directly lift their prospects or they're internally inventing and developing their new products. I mean, the Nestle that we own today is so vastly different than the Nestle that we've owned since 1986. At some level, there's some core principles. It can deliver food for 7 billion people around the world in a safe fashion. You realize that when you see E. coli sort of wipe out the romaine lettuce supply in North America. Well, you're delivering nutrition and food through Nestle at such scale that it's really quite valuable from that standpoint. They dominate certain categories where the consumer trusts their brand and and wouldn't think of going somewhere else in other categories. They've let the consumer think about going someplace else because of their own not invented here hangups. 
those have slipped by the side, and I think they're willing to source ideas most anywhere now. And they're responding much more quickly. So, But it's a completely different company. And within it, I think we have moonshots underway. And so within Google, do you try to assess how good they are at that? Well, absolutely. You've launched Waymo. They have a commercial run with Fiat, I think in, in Phoenix, where it's up and running. They have 5 million hours of experience, trouble-free driving. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's just extraordinary to think about what is around the corner. Well, Tom, let's turn to a couple of closing questions. Okay. And well, and this, the, uh, light, the lightning round. The lightning round. Uh, what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? It's a blend between sports and art. Art is a blend of my interest plus my wife's interest. And so we share that together. And so we spend time together on that. In sports, we spend time together. So the particular sports or particular type of art? Tennis. Yeah. Tennis probably the preeminent skiing the second and those are quite mainstream with art we're involved with different organizations that we support that take up some time and i'd say some allocation of time broadly for public causes is part of our spare time activity it's a big part of that are there particular causes that you're passionate about well, the schools that we're involved with, have been involved with, have been a first zone of defense. And so we spend a lot of time with those. And then we do startups. We have lots of startups. We have an art institute in Pennsylvania that's a summer retreat that we're very deeply involved with. But it's real. As Warren described, Doris's philanthropic opportunities is retail and his is wholesale at billions of dollars. And she does small things. Some of the most fun stuff doesn't require a lot of capital, but it requires some inspiration and some cheerleading. So we do that. What's your biggest pet peeve? Yeah. I'd say there are a couple in the investment business. There's some trigger words that really set me going. One of them is called space. And the other one's names. So when people say, I'm not familiar with names in that space, or I'm getting up to speed with names in that space, to my interpretation, what they really are saying is, I'm learning about the quality of the companies in this industry. But, you know, names and space have absolutely nothing to do with what we <laughs> said about. We're actually buying long-term stakes in businesses that are, you know, they are or are not superior based on people first, incentives second, products and brands third. And it's nothing to do with names and spaces. The other one in the investment business that's a pet peeve is the concept of cash flow conversion ratio which is unfortunately surfaces in the way companies manage their business. Wall Street has a term called cash flow conversion, which means the amount of money that businesses send back to their owners every year in excess of earnings. And in the more, in today's vernacular, the more that is over 100, the better. So I met with a public company that celebrated in the prepared text to a group of 150, 200 investors, the fact that they had taken their cash flow conversion ratio from 80 to 140 over the last four years. Round of applause to giving out 140% of their earnings. Then when asked about the following year, what their plans were, they said, well, our plans are really exciting because we're going to make investments in bolt-on investments that we've long needed to make but can only now make because we're getting the tax refunds from Europe. 
So I went up to the person afterwards, and I, the CEO afterwards. I said, now, let me just understand this. You said that you were excited that you took the cash flow conversion rate to 80 to 140. That meant that you were, you were obviously without the funds to, to make investments. You said that you had badly needed investments, but you wanted to wait to use the cash that just came in as a free benefit from tax. Why didn't you make those investments along the way? And why did you celebrate cash flow conversion ratio when you were obviously under? It's the same company that had not invested early on in their core category of yogurt, and they lost 40 percentage points to Chobani. And they're right at it the same way today. And the support that they take from Wall Street is the applause that they get for this cash flow conversion ratio. You can imagine from my perspective, my ideal cash flow conversion ratio is zero. That means that we have a budget. And at some level, Google stands out on that. They have zero because they have the ability to plow all that money back into moonshots. Unfortunately, there's just so much cash that comes from the search business that they can't deploy it. And so it builds in their balance sheet. But anyways, that's another pet peeve. And management following Wall Street's cue on this make all sorts of mistakes of underinvestment. We haven't talked a lot about reading and many investors. Oh my gosh. Recently, two great books. The Monk of Mocha, which is the story of Blue Bottle Coffee. Blue Bottle Coffee is now owned by Nestle. The amazing thing about the story, though, is that, well, it's a story about premium coffee in general, which is, of course, a big investment for us. But it's also the saga of a family from Yemen who came here poor, and the child grew up in the uh, tenderloin of San Francisco. And it's a story of perseverance, hope, and all the rest. It's a fabulous book. The second book recently was Shoe Dog about Phil Knight. Have you read it? I have. It's It's fantastic. Absolutely extraordinary. To think that he could get to almost a billion dollars in sales and the banks still threaten every every turn to fire him is expression about the world we once lived in. Today, there's not a banker who would fire a company but because they were growing at 100% a year as they did for 25 years in a row and lacked enough collateral to pay the bank back for the loan that they actually really needed. It's a great story. In your daily routine, Is there any reading that you almost never miss? The most regularly read is the Financial Times. Just the journalism so much better. And the the range of focus. It's like a camera lens. They just have a different aperture. And it captures all sorts of information that just doesn't relate to Americans. An amusing observation, I just came back from India, and the great newspaper, this is a billion, seven, three population, and there's the Times of India. It's big, bold print, and it's millions of circulations. And it is the funniest thing to read because they have articles in the Times of London like, water buffalo fell into ditch outside Punjab. <laughs> Yesterday afternoon, there it is. What the hell is that? And it's just such odd contrast between huge numbers of everything and then the ability, the capacity to focus on something like, oh, did you read about the water buffalo that fell into the ditch in the Punjab. There's something that it talks about with the Indian character, which I find to be quite interesting. So I see that every once in a while. But Financial Times is just a brilliant publication, and as is The Economist. Those are the two that are indispensable. I I happen to read about a hundred other things, but those are the two really big ones. And is there anything that you enjoy reading that other people might not know about? No, I'm a a very promiscuous reader. I think the third book I would recommend is called Essentialism, and it talks about how do you say no to the things that 
consume your time. You know, for me, I would read, you know, just from the start of the day to the end, but work comes in between in some ways. And, you know, I, I always have to recall Warren Buffett's advice, admonition, which is to say investing is not just about reading. It's a lot about reading. But if it were just about reading and storing what you read, librarians would be the richest people in the world because they know how to do it better than anyone else. But it's not. And what I personally struggle with, and I think other investors would share this, is that in the search for the final answer, the last unread bit on a subject, you can use that search to deflect the responsibility of making decisions with a sense of being fully engaged and productive. In the search, very quickly in an investment, you get 80% of the way to the outcome. And how much you dedicate for the remaining 20% can often be an excuse for inactivity rather than the requirement for the last piece. It's interesting. That's quite a contrast from what we often hear about the short-termism pervasive in the markets. Oh, yeah. But I think that those two books I suggest would give you great, great fun. Your listeners, great fun. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I came from a family with five children. I think our age span is seven years. And so my parents were at some point or other, I think, endowed with five children under the age of seven. So it was categoric bedlam. And it was a sense that they inculcated in our family, which was quite extraordinary, of respect amongst those living forces that otherwise, without that guidance, would have certainly been like brownie in motion, bumping in and doing all sorts of things. But they kept our home quite managed, and it was by virtue of this notion of respect and courtesy. Those are two big parts of value. I guess by their own example, a sense of some sort of public service. I think at least my father was a surgeon, so his time was scarce, but my mother, on top of five children, also sort of involved with everything that mattered to help the town that we grew up in, serve the needs of people less fortunate. And so there's some of that. All right, Tom, last one. What is your favorite life lesson? Maybe one that you've learned over the years that you kind of wish you'd learned a lot earlier in your life. I think the life lesson that I constantly learn is that it is by delegation and by finding others who are in hopes smarter and more able than you that you allow yourself to have the ability to move to additional and possibly more profound activities. And so that notion of letting go to move forward is something that I've always struggled with. And it's something the value of which I realize increasingly with age and experience that it is the one way. And I actually learned this lesson, but you may have met the man who's the head of the Ontario Teachers Retirement Fund. And he said that he always recruited people, two people below him. Anytime he had a job, he had two people below him who he trained intensively so that they would be able to soon take over from what he was doing so he could then grab the next opportunity. And I share that. I think that's actually quite quite important. There's another answer I had as well. I'll refer to an interesting story with Jeff Bezos in mind, and I think it's something I have a challenge with as well. So Jeff Bezos tells a story in Princeton graduation speech that he gave in 2006 about being with his grandparents, who he adored. And he had just learned that cigarettes were possibly harmful. His grandmother was a massive chain smoker. And he had a number. And that number suggested that he played with a number. He came upon a number as he was driving across the country with his grandparents in a car full of smoke. 
And he took the number, processed it, and then blurted out to his grandmother, Grandma, you realize that your smoking will cause you to die 25 years earlier than you otherwise would have? And the grandmother loses it. The grandfather pulls off the side of the road and pulls him out of the car. He assumes he's going to get tarred and feathered by the grandfather for his rude conduct. And the grandfather took him to the side and said, you know, son, you will learn with age that sometimes it is better to be caring than smart. Because up until then, he always just assumed that the smarter he was, the better he was. And I think that's a terrific lesson. It's aligned with a lesson that says people remember people. It's actually, in a personal way, it was the advice that Michael Lowenstein's wife always gave as it was described at her funeral, which is people remember you far more for how you made them feel than how smart you were. And we're in a business of smart. And so our whole job is in some ways to be smart. And it's very important to remember that there's that other side. And I gather that both from Carol Lowenstein's life practice, why she was so celebrated, and also from Jeff Bezos's sort of early lessons from his grandfather. So that's it. Wonderful. Tom, thank you so much thank for taking you the very time. Much. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 